Hello, and welcome to the podcast for Neighborhood Church. This message, titled Faith on Fire, was given by Larry Volt and was the first in our series, Transformational Church, Churches That Produce Transformed People. Good morning. Find your sermon outline there in your bulletin and open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, please. 1 Thessalonians, you're going to find that on page 1837, if you're using that book rack Bible, maybe you've got a smartphone or a laptop or a whatever you've got, Kindle, whatever, whatever you've got, find it in your Bible, 1 Thessalonians. Today we begin a brand new series we're calling Transformational Church. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians is an amazing letter of commendation and encouragement to an amazing church, a church that I hope we model the same characteristics Now, at Neighborhood Church, our purpose is life transformation through following Christ, and we put a lot of emphasis into what that means. But we don't always see the connection between personal life transformation and what happens in the community of believers that are around us. In other words, what I'm hoping we can answer in this series is what kind of church fosters life transformation through following Christ? I mean, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, you're already in the, in the queue of being transformed. God wants to transform you. He's committed to transforming your life. But there are environments that we can get in that are better than others in terms of how that transformation takes place. And that's why this series we're calling Transformational Church is all about the characteristics. And we're going to look at 10 of them in this series. A 10-week series in this little book, five chapters, that Paul wrote in the first century, to describe to us or help us see what transformational churches are all about. And I I think it's important that we do this because some of us come from churches maybe that have not been so transformational. I talk to people all the time who have come from places where there's really no excitement, there's no joy in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Very rarely will a new person attend that church. They come from places where it's always the same old, same old that's going on. It's kind of like the us for and no more mentality. We want people in our little group. We don't want outsiders coming in. Some of us come from churches where worship is non-participatory. Passion is absent from singing, from uh, the preaching, from praying, from everything in the church, from serving. But the gospel is something that should electrify us. It should make us on fire for him. And if you know Christ... Hopefully, there's a, and I'm not talking about a hyper-emotionalism, but that there ought to be something kind of burning inside of us that says, I want to live for Christ and I want to make a difference in the world that I'm living in. Is that your heart today? I hope it is. Some of us come from churches that are not so life transformational. And I could go on from here, but I, I, I want to just take a minute and say, I think Neighborhood Church is an amazing church. I think we are a transformational church, but even as transformational churches go, we can grow in transformation. And the reason I know that's true is I hear stories sometimes from people right in our own church where I kind of scratch my head and I say, ooh, that's not so transformational. Let me just offer a couple of stories that I've heard in recent days. I had a guest email me recently that said, you know, I came into church, I sat down in a seat, I got there early because I didn't know what time the church service started, so I was there, I was one of the first people there, I was sitting there, and someone came in as everyone was coming into church, and they said to me, excuse me, you're sitting in my seat. (laughs) 
I'm saying, did you get this person's name? That's what I wanted to say. They said, is that the way it is? Do people have assigned seats in church? Oh, that just broke my heart. I don't know how that kind of stuff happens, but it happens. Here's another story. Now, these are some of the, the, this is the dark side, okay? (laughs) Someone told me they were sitting in the lobby one day. A guy came in and, bless our ushers. You know what we try to do? We try to create an environment during the sermon time that is less distracting. And so you've noticed when sermon time starts, the ground floor we shut down because people walk in, they come down, they walk around, and everybody just kind of looking at them, a lot of distraction going on. So we close our doors. Bless those ushers. Sometimes they, they're kind of like armed guards out there. And someone came up to one of our dear ushers in the lobby and said, hey, time to go in. And the, the usher kindly said, the sermon has started. There's seats upstairs. And the guy argued with them trying to get in the door. And finally, the usher said, sir, I'm sorry the pastors asked that we keep these doors closed during the sermon time. And the guy said to him, I've been attending here a long time, and this is beep. And people in the lobby heard that. I said, where is this guy? I mean, now, I'm just, I'm talking straight up to you today. Here's another story, last story, and then we're going to move on, okay? Someone recently was a newcomer to our church, and they were leaving in our church parking lot, and you know how the congestion is out there, and they weren't quite paying attention, and they tapped the car in front of them. Not really any damage, but it was kind of like a boom, and they got out of the car. They said, oh, I'm sorry, looking for the damage, and the person gets out of the car and swore at them up and down. Now, this person told me this, and I said, you know what? We have lots of guests and lots of people from the outside that come. I'm sure it was one of those folks. Please, Lord, let it be one of those folks. Please let not let it be one of our pastors, Lord, please. No. I mean, I hear this kind of stuff. Now, these are random, but you have to know that as a pastor and other, other pastors, we've got story time. Monday is our staff meeting, and a lot of times we share stories of some of the goofy stuff that happened. And whenever I hear this kind of stuff, I say, there is room for transformation, You can be a part of that transformation. It's critical. It's so critical. So we're going to look at these ten characteristics, and we're going to see the first characteristic come off the page to us this morning here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And let's, in honor of God's word, let's stand together. And as I read this, see if you see yourself in this passage. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for you, for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God the Father and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves 
report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, Lord, we pray, I pray that this sermon will be more than words, but will come with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will be glorified and you might set some folks free this morning and you might turn all of us to the beautiful truth of what it means to be in a transformational church. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. All right, this is an expositional study, which means we're gonna go verse by verse through this whole book. We're gonna be camping out here for 10 weeks. By the way, there are study guides available. If you want to uh, join in a small group uh, and follow along in the sermon series, you can do that. You can go online to our website, and uh, they're there for you week. They'll be posted by the week, and uh, you can do that as well if you want to track with us a little bit more on this. Now, what I want to say, say to you today, I think the main idea of this text if we're looking at it through the grid of what makes a transformational church, I think transformational churches are made up of members whose faith in Jesus Christ is genuine and contagious. Genuine and contagious. Say those two words. Genuine and contagious. And in fact, I don't think you can be genuine without really being contagious. And I think that's what we're reading about in the Thessalonians right here. This was a, this was a church where their, they, their hearts in Christ were on fire. They were on fire for the truth. They had genuine faith. They weren't pretentious. They weren't walking into places pretending to know God and then, you know, just kind of by their behavior, by their language, by their attitudes, showing that they had no relationship with God. They were committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what that means to me are three things, and I want to point them out to you in this text. If we're talking about a faith that is on fire, I want to give you three things about faith that's on fire. Number one, a faith that's on fire has to be started. Fires have to start somewhere. And uh, working in the fire department a little bit, I see this. If there's a structure fire, uh, the fire you know, uh, inspectors come in and they try to figure out where the fire started. Every fire, no matter how big it is, has a place a starting point, a ground zero, and here we learn, in verse one, we learn about the ground zero of Thessalonica. We learn about where this all got started. And in verse one, we first read about Paul, Silas, and Timothy and their part in this, and we're gonna get to who they are and what they were a part of. But we know if you read the book of Acts, you know that Paul was on his second missionary journey when he comes to the little town, and it wasn't a little town, it was a, very, it was a leading city in Macedonia. It was on the, high, the Ignatian Highway, which connected Asia to Europe. It was also a seaport city. And so there was, there was commerce and traffic and politics, and, and it was an autonomous city in, in the Roman Empire as well. It, it was a city that governed itself and followed uh, its own dictates and plans. And when Paul landed there, in Thessalonica, and it's a beautiful story, we'll look at it in a minute, he's there with Silas, and, 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 and an amazing ministry begins. But what I want to show you uh, in terms of where things get started, there are at least four things true of every transformational church. If you're taking notes, write this down. First of all, there's a party. Say that with me. There's a party. Now, I, I don't mean a party as in ice cream and cake. I, I mean a party as in the, a group of people who led the charge. 
and we read about them right here, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now, Timothy uh, may not have been with them at the time that the church started, but Timothy did travel through that area, met up with Paul after Paul had been to Thessalonica, and he's the one that brings the report of what's going on in the Thessalonica area and the church that was started there, and that prompts Paul to write back to the church, and that's the letter that we're reading right here. So these three guys, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, were a part of getting this whole thing going there in, uh, in Thessalonica. Now, when you think about Neighborhood Church, we had a party that started too. It started with a guy by the name of Earl Sexhauer and his wife and a couple of friends in a little storefront down on, on, uh, in, in Oakland. Uh, off of MacArthur Boulevard, Trenor Street is, I believe, where it was first started in, in the 1930s. And when you think about that, just a handful of people, and now all these years later, look at all these people. And I think I did some simple calculations, and over the last whatever 70-plus years that we've been in existence as a church body, that little party of Earl Sexhauer and a few of his close friends that had a vision for reaching Oakland for Jesus, it's amazing to think that there have been literally hundreds of thousands of people through this little party that got started back in the 1930s that have been exposed to the gospel, many of whom have trusted in Christ and gone all over the world. Isn't that exciting? That's what happens when a fire starts. And not only is there a party, there's a place. Say that. There's a, a place. And the place is the location of the church. Now I said that we started down in Oakland. Now here we are in Castro Valley. Paul's writing to the church of the Thessalonians. Churches get started in places and they continue to have association in that particular place. And in fact, if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, go back to the book of Acts. Let's just see the place unfold to us. Acts chapter 17. We don't have a lot of time here, so we're going to go quick. But Acts 17... Uh, this is where it all starts for the Thessalonians. Now Paul, it's a, kind of a long story building up here, but Paul and Silas have just come out of, of some real trouble in Philippi, which is about 100 miles north of where Thessalonica is. And they've wound their way down into Thessalonica because of the pressure and because of the things that are going on the, with the gospel ministry. It says in verse 1 that when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. In other words, there was a significant ministry that started there in Thessalonica. Now Paul first would go to the Jewish synagogue and he would preach the gospel there. And the Bible says he was there for three Sabbaths a day. Now if you do your math, that's about three weeks. <laughs> Sabbath comes once a week. Three weeks, some commentators believe that Paul was only in Thessalonica for a total of three weeks. That really doesn't seem to fit with other places in Scripture where Paul talks about the Philippians who sent him aid while he was in Thessalonica on a number of occasions. So maybe the better understanding is, is that Paul may not have been there for very long, but the reality was he was teaching the Jews in the synagogue for three weeks, and then his ministry went to the Greeks and, and, uh, and among others there as the church began to grow. Read on with me, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house, this is probably where Paul and Silas were staying, in order to bring them out to the crowd. 
But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason out. That's a problem when you're hosting guys like Paul and Silas. And they're not around. They're out preaching the gospel. Well, guess what? You get taken out now. And uh, they started shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They were all def- they're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. See, they were preaching that Jesus was sovereign king. And is that not true? I mean, we all have a sovereign king. And he's not the president of the United States. And he's not a king if you're in some you know, land that has a king or a queen. It is Jesus who reigns in our hearts. Does he not? Verse 8. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and then, when they had, uh, then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Well, the, this caused such a stir. In verse 10, we find that it wasn't long after that that the brothers sent Paul and Silas away onto another city, probably for their own protection. So whether Paul and Silas were only there for three weeks or whether they were there for a little bit longer time, the point is they weren't there very long. But the reality is, They were there. It happened in Thessalonica. There's a party, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. There's a place. Thirdly, there's a people. Notice in verse 1, back to 1 Thessalonians. And we're we're taking this verse by verse. I want to just break this up for you. It says there in verse 1, the church in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a people. Say that. There's a, a people. And the people are the people of the church that Paul's writing to. Uh, he talks about this word, this word church, ekklesia, the Greek word ekklesia. It's, it was actually a secular word that meant gathering or assembly. Um, but New Testament writers began associating with it the idea of being a separated assembly. Uh, the word is actually a compound word. Ek means out of. Uh, kaleo is the word that we... Uh, uh, mean the, the word that means to call out or to, to call. So when you put ek kaleo together, it means to call out that the church is the ecclesia, which in its noun form, which means we are the called out ones. We have been called out. Have you been called out? Called out of the world of sin, called out of the world of secularism, called out of the world that just sort of pushes God to the margins of our lives. We have been called out. We are a, per, a particular and peculiar peculiar people. Indeed we are. And this is what Paul is saying here. There's a people, the church, and notice the designation, in God the Father and Jesus Christ. In the original language, there's only one preposition, but two proper nouns. Now that may not, you know, excite you, but it excites me, because that means the nouns, in the Greek language, very precise language, that means the nouns are equal to each other. If God the Father and Jesus Christ are not equal, Paul would have said or written in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says in one preposition, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The two are one. Isn't that good? Just a neat little insight. How the Father and the Son are equal in substance and essence. One of the beautiful, cherished doctrines of our faith. And that's what we are. We are a people who cherishes the fact that we have been called out by God. And if you don't see yourself like that, uh, then you kind of mold and blend. You're like a chameleon. When you're in church, you act like church people most of the time. But when you're away from the church, you act like with whoever you're with. 
You act like the people at work or the people in your neighborhood or the people, whatever. You just kind of blend in. You just kind of morph into there. Now, we are to be a, a people that are separated. And by that, I don't mean that we should just try to be contrary to our culture. There is a salt and light aspect to it. But if we don't see ourselves as called out, then our identity is in whatever we're doing at the time, whatever we're spending time with, and whoever we're with instead of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? There's a party, there's a place, there's a people. And lastly, there's a process. And I don't want to treat this too lightly. You know, when you read Paul's letters, you often see this little salutation where he says, look at verse 1 again, grace and peace to you. Uh, Paul uses this greeting often in his letters because this is the way Paul is describing the process by which lost sinners gain their new identity. He says it comes first through grace. And by the way, this is the way it's always ordered in Scripture. Grace and peace. You know why? Because grace is the precursor to peace. If you don't experience grace, you don't get to peace. And the reason I point that out in terms of process is because we're big in process here at Neighborhood Church too. And any transformational church has to be. If you start it wrong in the process, you get everything fouled up. And I know churches, I've met people that come from churches who get this process mixed up and they go after peace first, world peace, peace of mind, peace of spirit, peace in my family, peace whatever. But if you don't go from grace, uh, if you don't start with grace, you never really arrive at peace. And so churches that just focus on the peace side of things are a hit and miss when it comes to the grace side of things. But if you start with grace, what Paul's saying is you always end in peace. I love that. Peace is the absolute automatic product of what happens when grace. That's why we teach grace. We present grace. It is God's unmerited favor to us. It is Christ's riches given to us. It is not by our works, not by anything that we have done. It starts with grace. It ends with grace. And as grace starts in our lives, peace follows. That's the process. So with that in mind, that's how the fire gets started. There's a party, there's a people, there's a place, and there's a process. Number two, a fire not only has to get started, a faith on fire gets started, but a faith on fire needs to be stoked. And I see that in verses four through seven, or excuse me, two through seven. In these six verses, there's a lot of stoking going on. And that's what, because transformational churches realize the importance of stoking the fire. Every week you come in here, our prayer is that your fire in Christ gets hotter. You get more excited about who he is in your life. And every time you meet in a small group, every time you live out the process, every time you serve in whatever it is that you're doing, guess what? You're stoking your fire as well as the fire of those around you. And there ought to be a lot of warmth in a place like this. There's lots of people here. And if we're truly the church that God's called us to be, if we're a transformational church, then there's a lot of stoking going on. Now look at verse 2, the opening phrase. It says, we always thank God for you. Now when I was studying this passage, I thought that there was a lot of things going on here, and there are. I saw that, that he always thanked God, that he always prayed for them, that he always remembered them, that he knew something about them, and so on. But what when I really got down to the bare bones of studying this text, I found that the controlling verb in this entire section is found right there in verse 2. We always thank. 
This is the primary verb. This is the primary focus. So I've put in my notes, and I want you to as well, that the overarching principle of stoking the fire of people's faith is through gratitude. Say that. Gratitude. That's how we stoke the fire of people's faith. That's how you do it in your home. That's how you do it in your neighborhood. That's how you do it at church. Anywhere we are, we stoke the fire of people's faith through gratitude. And watch this. Not gratitude just to a few select people, but notice he says, we thank God for how many of them? All of them. All of you. There ought to be a a complete thankfulness that happens. Now what follows this main verb are three uh, participial phrases. Participles modify the main verb. So what they, what they do is they show us sort of the how it is done factor. So Paul's saying, we thank God for all of you, and now he's going to give you three ways in how he thanks God for them. And all three of these ways are ways that the fire gets stoked. If you're taking notes, notice first of all, we stoke people's faith, fire of their faith, by praying for them. At the end of verse 2, he says, we continually, excuse me, at the end of verse 2, he says, always mentioning you in our prayers. Prayer is a really big part of a transformational church. And I don't think this is talking about a program of prayer. And it wasn't because Paul's writing a letter and he's just saying, when I think of you guys, I just want you to know I pray for you all the time. This is one of the ways I show gratitude. I pray for you. I pray for you. This is not a program of prayer. This is spontaneous, catalytic prayer. This is the idea that when you're in conversation with somebody and they're talking about a tough thing they're going through or an issue they've got coming up this week or something going on in their lives, the prompting of the Spirit would say, pray for this person right now. And you know what I would love to see around here? Here's an area. This is a gentle nudge toward how we can become more transformational. What we ought to see around here a lot more is after services, between services, little clusters of people just gathering around and praying for each other. And I do see that. It's beautiful to see. I see people gather in little groups, and that's probably because someone brought up something that was going on in their week, and someone there had the spiritual uh, maturity to say, you know, let's just, before we break this conversation, let's pray for this situation, and let's gather up in a circle. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. It doesn't say, let's everybody pray around the circle, and I'll start, and you finish. No, we don't have to do that. Just somebody with maturity says, hey, before we break this conversation, let's, let's commit that to the Lord and just put your hands on each other and pray for each other. Wouldn't that be amazing that before you left this place today, even if you never showed up in the prayer room, as you were walking out just sharing with your life uh, something going on in your life, a brother or sister or maybe a small group of people gathered around you and prayed for you. Would you feel encouraged by that? Absolutely. You would leave here walking a little taller, feeling better because someone's sharing your burden, knows what's going on in your life. And that, in that way, we are emulating what Paul talks about in Ephesians six eighteen, where he says we should pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Beautiful passage. We've studied it many times. We stoke the fire of people's faith by praying for them. Another way we do it, is we do it by encouraging them. Verse 3. We continually remember our, before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Now here's a beautiful picture of encouragement. This phrase, we continually remember, is a way Paul's bringing back up something that he wants to commend them for. And there's a, a beautiful little thing that happens here. He talks about three things he sees, and maybe you've never pull these apart. I'm going to pull them apart as quickly as I can. He says, first of all, your work produced by faith. What is that? And how is that different from a labor that is prompted by love? Sounds like the two things are the same. They're really not. Paul's using a very general 
assessment when he says your work produced by faith. Anything that you do in the kingdom of God, you might be an usher or a greeter. You might work in our parking lot on a Sunday morning. You might be up here flipping eggs for our cross streets ministry or you might be uh, stuffing bulletins on a Friday morning or you might be uh, serving the church by uh, volunteering some time for cleaning or supporting in some way. Whatever, whatever you do, if you're doing it with the right motive, you know what Paul wants to say to you through the scripture and you know what I want to say to you as a pastor in a church that I hope is becoming more transformational? Thank you for what you're doing. That's an encouragement to all of us. Everything we do with the right motive for Christ is a work of faith. And the Bible says that true faith produces works, right? Right? Our works don't save us, but true faith, real faith, contagious faith produces works. And this is what Paul was commending them for. Whatever's going on in your life today. And by the way, if you're not serving somewhere, somewhere, and I'm not talking about necessarily a job in the church, but if you're not putting your spiritual gifts to work in the kingdom of God somewhere, somehow, then you're not aiding, watch this, you're not aiding to the transformational, uh, transformative power of neighborhood church. You're not. Uh, you might be taking up some space. You might be encouraging, uh, be encouraging your own life. But here's the problem. In our culture, Christians have become so consumer-focused, it's all about what the church does for me. And so I look for a church that can meet my needs and do the things that I need to have in my life. And we're not thinking when I go into a church, how could I be a part of uh, accelerating the gospel work in this area? How could my, what oftentimes looks like as a meager, something that is very common, very humble, a gifting that God's given to me, how could I use that to leverage the kingdom of God? And the point is, you can, you should be, and if you're not, here, listen to your pastor. You're going to hear all through this. This is a beautiful series because as a pastor, I get to talk to the church. And we are the neighborhood church. And I'm saying, are you using your spiritual gifts in works of, of service? Because if you are, it's commendable and it's encouraging to the people that are around you. Secondly, there's also this idea of labor prompted by love. Now, this word labor Paul uses is a different word from the word work. Aragon, it's, it's, labor means to, to uh, it's the idea of arduous or the trenches or maybe even the dirty work. I, I thought about this a lot and I thought, wow, there's things that sometimes people do in the body of Christ that are kind of like that. And I, I, I want to be careful because I don't want to link too much of this to specifics where you think, well, Pastor Larry just thinks that that's kind of the trench work. I, I'm not saying that, but sometimes when I think of like, and I'll just throw out a couple of ideas, when I think about Adults that are working in like student ministries, junior high or high school, I think that's laborious work. Not because it isn't fun, believe me. I was a youth pastor for a lot of years until they demoted me to become senior pastor. <laughs> I know what it's like. It's a beautiful experience. Pastor Danny's right down here. He knows. It's a beautiful experience. But if you're an adult and you're running with kids all the time and you're picking them up and you're going here and there and you're trying to make them feel encouraged and you're giving the gospel to them, it is a hard job. And we ought to just thank God for our student ministry workers. Uh, a, a few months, a couple months ago, when Jeffrey McKinney, our young man of 21 years of age, passed on, went home to be with the Lord, I was so touched in that service that a couple of his student leaders 
stood up on this platform and told about the many different ways that they had reached out and the many ways that Jeffrey had had an impact on them and how their group had grown and just beautiful and beautiful and beautiful. And I thought, these are people that are willing to stay in the trenches with young people who are back and forth and up and down and not always consistent. And one day they're hot and one day they're cold and it's just this menagerie of what do you get today kind of thing. Maybe same way with working with little children in our ministry. I don't know where it is where the trenches are for you. And then I even thought, I thought, you know, maybe when you just do works of service, works uh, that are produced by faith, if you stay in anything long enough, I think that becomes labor intensive too. I know a lot of pastors who serve in churches for a couple of years. They run out of sermons. They run out of their jokes. They run out of whatever else it is and energy, and they move on to another church. Because they want to start fresh again with the stuff so they don't have to go for fresh bread, new, you know, fresh manna for the, for the leading and the teaching of God's people. And I'm not, that's a stereotype, but it's true. There are a lot of people that just stick around for a while, then they move on. Pastor Jake taught me years ago, the grass always seems greener on the other side of the fence, but guess what? The grass still has to get mowed. Wherever you go... You still got, there's going to be work, there's going to be labor intensive. So God put it in my spirit years ago that I'm just going to stay here till, till God moves me out. And what, the, what I mean by that is, is the leadership of this church says, it's time for you to go. Now, I, that day may come soon, may come after this sermon, I don't know. <laughs> now, we have a beautiful relationship and it's a, we have a great staff and beautiful things that are going on. But the point is this, if you stick it out in ministry, I don't care who you are, it becomes a grind at times. Amen? That's a weak amen. I don't know where you've been. I've been in the trenches. It's trench warfare at times. And you know why we stay in the trenches? Because it's love. You don't move on. You don't just pull up stakes. You don't say, I've had it. They haven't appreciated me enough. I just move. You know why you don't? Because you love. You love. Labor-intensive work. Thirdly, notice he says, and a hope inspired, and your endurance inspired by hope. Endurance inspired by hope. Um, He's encouraging them because he saw that they stuck it out. Uh, This could be an illness. It could be a personal challenge. But whatever it was, you stuck it out. You didn't give up. I think of dear friends in our cancer support group and blended families and divorce care and single parents and places where it's just hard. Life is hard. And I think, you know what? You're such a blessing to us when you stick it out, when you hold tight, when you say, I'm not jumping ship. I was reading the paper. My mother-in-law gave me a beautiful article out of the Daily Review this weekend about David Akers. He's the field goal kicker for the San Francisco 49ers. And I didn't know this story because he's kind of a quiet guy. I mean, praise God for guys like Tim Tebow. I love the testimony of a guy like that. But David Akers, you probably won't see the same kind of thing. He's kind of a quiet guy, but he's really committed to Christ. At least the article that I read was outstanding. Did you see the article? It talks about in the article how he was, he's on the top of the food chain in terms of field goal kickers. He had set all kinds of records. He was the kicker of the decade. He's playing with the Philadelphia uh, Eagles. And in a playoff game in 2010, he misses two field goals. Well, what people didn't know when he missed those two field goals, which was unnatural for him, was that he was going through a family crisis at the time. His middle daughter, Haley, had a tumor that looked like it may be cancerous, and it shook the whole family up, and he was in the midst of all this stuff going on when that 
playoff game came. They lost the game by five points, and Coach Reed said that they could have really used those two field goals, and he lost his job. About the same time, after losing that job, his finances that were in the hands of a person that he trusted but was involved in a Ponzi scheme ended up losing all of his savings. So he lost his savings. Football players make a lot of money. He lost his savings. He, He was tentatively or worried about losing something in his family. And then he got his walking papers from the Philadelphia Eagles. And in the article it says, it goes on to talk about what he was learning during that time. And he said, well, what I was learning was Romans 5, 3 through 5. that talks about when you go through trials and tribulations, it builds character. And character builds hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. And then he went on to say that right after that time, the 49ers gave him a call. And when I read that article, I said, thank you, Lord, for bringing David Akers to the 49ers. (laughs) And I hope he kicks about five today. That would be awesome. But you know what? Whatever happens, whatever happens, you know why I'm glad David Akers is a 49er? Because the light is shining over there. And, and there are other Christians as well on the team, but it was just a beautiful little thing to see. Here's a guy quiet in his faith, watch this, who's hanging tough, who's, and by the way, his daughter's doing fine, a beautiful story, God's moving through this, but even if it wasn't, I think David Aker's the kind of guy that says, God's in charge, I'll trust him, I'm going to follow him no matter what. Is that your life? When the going gets tough, do you just kind of pull up and say, well, I'm out of here, I guess I can't, you know, do this anymore? So we stoke people's faith by praying for them, by remembering them or encouraging them. Thirdly, we've got to move quick here, by validating them. Verses 4 through 7, there's a little section here on validating. And, and what I mean by validating, look at verse 4. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. This is, this is the last of the participial phrases. This is the idea of Paul saying, look it, this is how we're stoking your faith. We're praying for you. We're remembering you, and we know something is true about you. And you know what he knew was true about them? He knew they were true believers. He knew they were the real deal. Do people know that about you? Do they know that about me? Now, how did he know they were the real deal? Quickly, if you're taking notes, you can just look at it there. I think that you don't have to write this down. He could validate their faith by witnessing first how the gospel had come to them. Notice how the gospel came? With power and the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You can identify the people of God when God's spirit goes forward in preaching and the word of God and people experience power, the Holy Spirit's conviction over their lives. That's a beautiful thing. That has nothing to do with me. I'm gonna prepare as much as I can, but I realize that when the words leave my lips, if they are not anointed by the Holy Spirit of God, you will leave this place today thinking perhaps, well, that was a clever message. There was logic involved. It was something I could listen to. Maybe I didn't fall asleep, whatever. But if the Holy Spirit's gonna land on your heart, if the Holy Spirit lands on your heart, there's conviction and there's life change going on as a result of the preaching, then the Holy Spirit's doing his job and that's proof that you belong to him. John 10, 28, Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them 
from my Father's hand. Oh, it's beautiful. When the Holy Spirit is involved in our lives, we know it, people around us know it. Paul could validate their faith, watch this number two, by not only how the gospel came to them, but how the gospel was transforming them. He says in verse, end of verse five, he says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. In other words, your life is becoming more and more like Christ every day. I see the pattern of Christ in your life. You're becoming more and more like your spiritual leaders that led you. You're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, who is the, who is the ultimate example to our lives. You're yielding to Christ in a daily way, and that's what makes a transformative church. People are yielding not to a pastor, not to a program, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. Their transformation was also seen in the joy that they had amidst the suffering they had for the gospel. This is something that Paul was pointing out to remind them to be encouraged in light of all the suffering that they were going through. How the gospel had come to them, how the gospel was transforming them, and lastly, finally, which brings us into our last point, how the gospel was spreading through them. He says in verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. And I read that, I said, man, that's a series, that's a topic we need to talk about. You think our church could have the reputation of the church at Thessalonica? You bet. A church where everywhere people go, no matter where they go, if they come in contact with somebody that had some relationship to us, oh, there's a place where life transformation happens. There's a place where people are real, where people are on fire for Christ. They're not going through religious motions there. They are engaged. They love Jesus. They're following Jesus. A faith on fire has, has to get started. It has to be stoked. And lastly, if you're taking notes, a faith on fire will always spread. Just write that down. One thing about fire is that if it's given the right fuel and time, it's going to spread. I like how Paul lays the tracks of how the gospel spreads most quickly and most influentially among those to whom it goes. I see in verses 8 through 10 the way it ought to be in each of our lives. And notice, if you're taking notes there, just look at it, point A. It spreads fastest when others can see we have clearly departed from the way we used to live. Verse 9. For they themselves report the kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's, that means people are telling your testimony. Do you hear what happened to so-and-so? They used to do this and used to live that way and they used to be this way. and they But now... They're different. They're not perfect. Nobody is. But they have turned away from their idols and they're moving in a direction. And by the way, beloved, there are idols all around us. And all of us struggle with the idols in our lives. We need to have the reputation that we've turned from our idols. And lastly, and there's this emphasis all through the, the book of First Thessalonians, this idea of turning to Christ it spreads fastest when our focus and motivation for doing ministry is on Jesus Christ alone. And in the context here, he's talking about waiting, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. I don't have time to do it right now, but at the close of each chapter in this book, and remember, we put the chapter headings in, that means that on five occasions in this book, Paul ends a certain argument by reminding them that Jesus is coming back. 
Their focus was so much on Jesus Christ, they could live their day today knowing that he could come that day. Is that the way we live our lives? We say around here, it's always about Jesus, it's only about Jesus. Is that really what's coming through our lives? It's all about Jesus, it's only about Jesus. So, that's just, it's kind of a preview this morning, but what makes a transformational church transformational is that its members, it is full of people, chock full of members and leaders, watch this, whose lives are, whose Christian life, whose faith in Christ is real and contagious. Now, if we're going to be a transformational church, that means all of us need to have a real and contagious faith. And there may be somebody here today that does not have a real faith. And you know why? Because you've never embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And today, that can all change mysteriously by the power of God right now, right here. Let's go to the Lord and let's see what he wants to do in our hearts. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. I can only trust and pray, Lord, that you will have done what you wanted to do with this passage of Scripture this morning. And I'm sure while we've left much undone in this passage, there's been plenty for your Holy Spirit to speak to us and massage our hearts and to conform us to your image. And and Lord, there may be somebody here today that realizes right now they need a relationship with you. And before I finish this sermon, may your Holy Spirit invite them into this relationship by trusting in you to say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I need you in my life. I want to leave my life of sin. I want to come to you. And if that's the heart of any person, thank you, Lord. Remind them that that's your desire coming forth in their life. They've not figured it out. They're not clever enough, wise enough, smart enough. But by your grace, you've opened their heart to see the truth. And I pray that today they might reach out to you. If that's you, my friend, right where you sit, open your heart to Jesus right now. If it's been a while, if you've been walking away from Christ, but you know you'll belong to him. Today's a day to come back. Today's a day to say, God, I want to live a transformed life. Let it start today. Just simply ask the Lord, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to follow you with all my heart. I want it to be real, and I want it to be contagious. Thank you, Lord. Hear our prayers. Help us now respond to you, Lord, in a way that will honor you, whether we're coming to faith for the first time or coming back in faith or just affirming the faith you've given us already. Lord, let this be a beautiful moment for your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? Everybody stand. Pastor Paul's gonna lead us in. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear additional messages, or you're interested in finding out more about Neighborhood Church, please visit our website at threecrosses.org. That's the number three, crosses.org.